you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week in our newest segment, Singer Trading Cards, we take a look at the American League and some great artists of the recent past you'll want to add to your collection. At least there's something good about America right now, and uh, it's just here on Opera Box Score. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Jonas Kaufmann will bite off an ear for love, but he won't do that. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow. If you listen on an Apple Podcasts, you can just hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pen just for sharing your own hot take. And George will get that for you just as soon as he gets back from England, which is where he is at the moment. Drink. Oliver, what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> Uh, I'm drinking a lot of coffee because we've entered into that time of the year when I wake up super early and the first thing I do is turn on the TV to see those beautiful white outfits against that luscious <laughs> green grass. Yes, it's the first day of Wimbledon, everybody. And it's sad this year. Wimbledon doesn't count for anything except for the clout of winning a Grand Slam, even though there's no ranking points due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm, yes. Another Matt, reason to rail against Putin. Mess, messing as up as the if we ATP. another one. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't with it until then, but now. <laughs> Matt, what are you drinking tonight? Yeah, I'm just drinking my sorrows because I realized tonight that we're not getting the Olympics every six months like I had really gotten accustomed <laughs> oh, to. So tragic. As we're going into summer, it just feels like we should be getting ready for that. But alas, we got two more years to go. <laughs> oh, yes. Ashley Hardgrave, what's on the drink menu for you tonight? Right now, it is a watermelon LaCroix with bruised Ooh. mint from my garden. Let me tell you, I'm Ooh. ready to be fancy at home. Uh, speaking of fancy, we're closing out Pride Month. And as we do that, let's take a moment to show some love to the Chicago White Sox, Leon Hendricks, our Australian angel. Because the last time I was on the show, I talked about baseball players who were basically homophobes. Let's talk about <laughs> a lovely baseball player who is, in fact, not a homophobe, but an ally. So when he was in negotiations to find his current team, which is the White Sox, he wanted to make sure that that team had a pride night so that he could be mm. a supporter of it. He is an LGBT ally. He is a ladies ally. He just spoke out on the overturning of Roe. We love and support Liam Hendricks. Go Sox. We stand indeed. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's right. We have a brand new segment here on Opera Box Score. So new, in fact, we haven't gotten Norm to record it yet. But Oliver, walk <laughs> us through what this is all about. You mean, because Norm is always with us all the time when we record. Yeah, you mean, he's Norm, always in Norm the is room. On, Norm is on summer hours he right now. He is a consummate <laughs> professional. He delivers it exactly the same way every time. It's really extraordinary. So our new segment, Singer Trading Cards, is our way of giving, uh, you know, singers their props. We want to we want you to know them. We want you to know what their stats are. We want you to know their their bios and what their great assets are. 
Uh, and we're going to give them some some scores for certain uh, aspects of their artistry. Plus, you flip it over and you have a really beautiful picture of them in the most outrageous costume with all the makeup <laughs> and headgear. If you're lucky, and- it's holographic. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And You've activated we, my trap card. It's we're gonna start <laughs> with Nielsen. with the American League because you know sometimes there are those players that didn't get the recognition they deserved because there were bigger stars uh, in the field at the exact same time. Case in point, uh, my first card today goes to uh, Eleanor Ross, nay, Eleanor Marilyn mm. Rosenthal from Tampa, Florida, a dramatic soprano who began singing in the 50s and was best known in regional houses and overseas until one day in 1970, June 6th, she was asked to step in at the Metropolitan Opera on short notice for Birgit Nilsson and none other than the throat-busting role of Turandot <laughs> alongside Franco Corelli and Pilar Lorengar. Her Met debut, no pressure. What, <laughs> a, what yeah. a debut, jeez. <laughs> Let's listen to a tiny bit of In Questa Regia from a 1970 performance. I'm not sure if it's the exact same one, but it was in that same run. So as you can hear, the voice is very dramatic. It has a lot of color. And uh, yes, it almost sounds like a scream when she says, quel grito. But I, I just think that <laughs> I think that is text painting. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. That's what we'll say. So Eleanor Ross is a dramatic soprano. She sang roles like Norma, Amelia in a Masked Ball, Santuzza, uh, Abagaile, uh, Cherubini's Medea, uh, Madalena in Andre Chenier, um, all of the most dramatic and powerful music. Uh, she was, however, a quintessential Norma. And I think we should hear a little bit of her Norma. This is from a famous tape that was made in 1967. There's an entire video attached to it. 
with Mar- Mario del Monaco as Polione. Mm. But we're going to listen to the final aria, uh, De non voler mi vittime. Is that how you say it, Matt? De non yeah, vo- that sounds right. Okay. Uh, this is the aria where Norma is asking her dad, will you just like watch these kids while I step into this fire? <laughs> <laughs> Direct translation. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> um, this is just to show her bel canto chops, her ability to phrase and her, her tone quality, which, you know, at the end of a two and a half hour opera still sounds glorious with lots mm. of breath control and the ability to add thrust in the climactic uh, moments of the phrase. a little heartbreaker there for you norma from uh berlin uh in 1967 so she sang a lot at the met donna anna aida once again amelia elisabetta and don carlo lady macbeth leonore and trovatore and tosca as well as gioconda unfortunately uh sad story in 1979 she had bell's palsy right in the mm. middle of a run of aida and she sang uh, she sang in Aida and she had like a feeling in her face like something is wrong. And that was the last time she sang uh, in an opera. But uh, so her career ended abruptly after only, I think, nine years at the Met mm. and the, her earlier career in regional houses and European houses. Uh, she did go under uh, a she surgery. She didn't even do Forza, the cursed opera. <laughs> she did have a surgery. And um, in 1996, she was able to sing uh, in a concert, uh, and we're here a little bit of that concert. Uh, this is uh, Eleanor Ross singing Summertime.
just imagine Eleanor Ross in her Turandot garb, her very uh, non-racist Turandot garb. <laughs> uh, with it's all an the... older baseball card yes, is what we're saying. Exactly. But you flip it over and we look at some of the stats. Uh, for power, she gets a 92. Ooh. For chest out, voice. Out of how many? What are we talking about? Out of 100. Here? On a scale oh, of 100. 100 scale. Yeah, okay, yeah, good. Yeah. I'm sure that will hold true among <laughs> yeah. all of these. <laughs> uh, chest voice, I'm giving her a 95. Oh, tone tone quality is going to be an 85 because there are moments where yeah. uh the the vibrato kind of gets very fast and where she uh puts so much thrust into the sound that the edges fray a little bit but when she's singing middle voice and it's mezzo forte forte uh that is a gorgeous dark american lined up bel canto tone flexibility is probably her lowest score just an 82 which is i think a good score for a dramatic soprano uh, you can't compare her coloratura passages in Norma to Edita Gubarova, but nor does Edita Gubarova have the same, you know, power in the voice. Amplitude. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I think you're always going to, you know, say that Caballé and Kalas were the most florid of the Normas. Uh, drama, she's got it. Watch this video of her Sutherland singing. Sutherland erasure, but okay. <laughs> Watch this video of her singing Norma. Anytime, anything you could see where you see some uh, of her acting. She brings it. It's very histrionic, but it's totally committed. And I'm going to give her just an 89 for, for... Actually, these points are not... I haven't given these points. These are the points that are just come down from science. So uh, really... <laughs> Really uh, beautiful phrasing, especially in bel canto, especially when, once again, uh, there isn't a big, big climax in the phrase. Uh, she does go for the climax is why she scores high in power, uh, but she tends to spend a lot of breath on some of those climactic notes. But I think, once again, if we're talking about, you know, uh, mezzo forte, forte max, uh, she can spin a line like anybody else. So all in all, a great American singer. We don't have a lot of Americans who did this repertoire when there were greats like Nielsen and Kalas and Shirley Barrett. <laughs> right, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's our contractual <laughs> obligation for mentioning to the Shirley Barrett once per episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, uh, let me set the stage for you. I've uh, I've gone onto eBay and I've ordered a lot of a hundred. Uh, baseball cards, and I'm thumbing through them. I see a uh, first edition Sammy Sosa garbage, throw it in the trash. I'm flipping <laughs> through. I see a, a Babe Ruth with the original bubble gum from uh, 70 years ago, garbage, trash. And then I, I, I pull out. What do I pull out, Matt? Who do I pull out next in this amazing box that I'm going to frame? You're pulling out one of the top singers ever to come out of the American conservatory system, oh. and that is none other than. Eleanor Staber. Uh, she is you got two Eleanors. That's what. How this random is, this is, is that? Great <laughs> Eleanor representation. Eleanor Sopranos. Uh, Eleanor Staber was born in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, and trained in New England Conservatory. She it was one of the first American-born, American-trained singers to really ri uh, rise to prominence. Uh, and part of that has to do with just like her dates, because she was born in 1914. So she's kind of in between the generation of singers like Tabaldi, Nilsson, Callas, and the singers before them, like, uh, I don't know, Amelie Tagali-Kurchi, or names that you have only heard on like weird phonograph transfers. Um, <laughs> and so she was 
was getting her start in the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and as you can maybe imagine, with a cursory knowledge of world history, there may have been a reason why European singers had a difficult time coming over to the Metropolitan yeah, Opera at why. that point. <laughs> so Staber was one of those crops that was he- of singers who was heavily, heavily recruited to be able to take on uh, these roles and continue the operations of the house. Uh, uh, and... She made her debut in the role of Sophie and De Rosen Cavalier, which is kind of insane given yeah. that the the size of repertoire that she would go on to sing. Um, but her one of her calling cards uh, in a very American singer kind of way was her versatility. Um, so she sang all kinds of roles at the house, like Desdemona, Fiordeligi, Violetta, Arabella in um, the titular Arabella. Uh, uh, Constanza in Abduction from the Seraglio, the Countess, uh, she premiered the role of uh, Samuel Barber's Vanessa. Um, one, uh, She mostly did perform at the Metropolitan Opera in terms of full roles, um, though that relationship did sour a little bit when Rudolf Bing took over as the general manager there. Um, he was known, I mean, he was Viennese, he, he was known as like kind of a blue blood, very aristocratic, very snobby, wanted <laughs> <say> the least. <laughs> wanted European singers. Thought that European singers were what the audiences wanted. Beverly Sills has talked about this at length. Mm. Um, but one of the first singers to really fall by the wayside as a result of that is uh, what was Eleanor Staber, who had been a stalwart of the house, but then started losing out to prime assignments to Renato Tibaldi, Maria Callas, uh, Licia Albanese, Lisa Della Casa. Uh, and so we never got the chance to hear we, you didn't really get the chance to hear her in her prime in roles uh, like uh, Minnie in Fantula del West, which mm. she did do in a fantastic uh, live performance in Florence with Franco Corelli. Let's hear a clip of uh, her aria from Act One of that La Juna Soledad. voice that high C like comes out of nowhere like a ball of fire uh, and there are lots of recordings of this aria where it does not actually uh, make it all the way up to a C and they are not by Renata Tibaldi I would never say anything like that um <laughs> But she, uh, and and this is from someone who was mostly known uh, as a Mozart and Strauss specialist on top of being a, like, on top of her variety. If there was one kind of niche that you would have slotted her into, it would have been that Mozart and Strauss kind of vein. Um, Because of the way that her, her voice was so 
even from top to bottom. It was totally secure. You never really hear register breaks. Um, it really blooms and gets ravishing in, in in her upper register. And so she's able to ride those high-lying Mozart and Strauss roles and just like ride that breath support and shape the line to do whatever she wants it to do. Um, and uh, on top of that, her range of dynamics are are simply incredible. The fortissimos are colossal, and the pianissimos are so breathtaking and so delicate. Um, and it never feels like you're like digging into a bag of tricks. Like it always feels totally organic. So let's get a sense of um what that mid-century Mozart style would have been like. So this is gonna, you know, it's gonna sound a little slow. It's gonna sound a little um <laughs> big band to you, maybe. But with singing like this, uh, in in Marriage of Figaro Porgio More, like I wouldn't complain. The way that she floats those phrase those those notes up on just like one single thread of the voice, like that is true Mozartian style, mm. um, and it really holds true even e- even though like stylistically we would perform this music incredibly different nowadays. I, I would also right. say that like there's something about the quality of these recordings that just feels nostalgic. I don't just the way she sounds, uh-huh. and there's like a little bit of a graininess, like in like a hiss in the sound that just makes it feel a little bit. I don't know, just older, and uh, it feels like it's in black and white, you know? But um. you may, but if you compare her to other recordings of this time, I do feel like you get a, se- a better sense of just, like, the caliber of tone quality than you would from, For like, sure. Alicia Albanese. And I just, I, before I forget to say it, I have to just say, like, in something like Porgia Amor, uh, it feels melancholy, but it feels athletic at the same time. And I think that is something that's so unique to her, maybe makes her sound so American is that even when she is doing the most delicate and the most, you know, nuanced singing, you always hear the technique. You always hear that she's can if you want to add volume to that, sure. If you want to add, you know, a high note to that, sure, no problem. It's there, you know. 
And there are there are some videos of her out there because she performed a lot on like the Bell Telephone Hour and Voice of Firestone and those kinds of like evening variety shows. She was kind of a stalwart there. Uh, and you watch her; she is planted like an Olympic weightlifter. Like it, ne- <laughs> it never looks it. It is always fully engaged. Like whether it's high, whether it's low, whether it's louder, whether it's soft. Like you can see that too. You like on top of just hearing it. And, you know, for a rel- for a pretty sizable voice, like, this is someone who premiered the role of Vanessa. Uh, she learned it in just a yeah. couple of weeks after yes. Zena Yurinats oh, backed oh out. Uh, and Maria Callas said that she didn't want to do it. Like, she was an impeccable musician and, like, could make a lot of sound. But she's also, like, her recording of the Susanna aria from Marriage of Figaro is beautiful and so delicate. And she can use, like, the right amount of the voice to bring these characters to life. Um, and her coloratura is pretty good too. It, it's articulated. It doesn't sound manufactured or like she's just lunging at it and hoping for the best. She premiered the role of Constant. She was the first person to sing um, "Abduction from the Ra- from the Seraglio at the Met, and she holds up pretty well in those endless, endless runs that just go up and down the scale again and again, as they put it in Amadeus. Unfortunately, her her life was not free from tragedy. She did suffer from uh, both asthma and alcoholism, and and performed less and less as she got older. But but continued a career as a teacher, uh, and that alcoholism I only bring up because it really in, it, it leads us into one of possibly the most famous story about Staber as a singer, which was that in the mid forties she was recording a recital disc. It was supposed to be Mozart and Strauss heroines, and you know they were they couldn't get it. They just couldn't get it to click. Um, and so the the engineer asked her what she wanted to sing, and she said, "Well, why don't we try the aria from Louise depuis le jour?" Uh, and they said, "Okay," and went out and found <laughs> the parts, and they recorded it in one take. Yeah. And so take a listen to that take now. This is just the most resplendent, refulgent singing from top to bottom. It goes high, it goes low, it goes loud, it goes soft. Sometimes, like on in one phrase. It just sounds so easy for her. She's able to do all these tricks back to back without ever sounding like she's breaking a sweat. Athletic and melancholy at the same time.
Sometimes you only need one take. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so when I turn this card over, we're going to see that her her strengths, the tone quality and caliber of sound is 95. For yeah, her variety, absolutely. it's a 90. You know, she's a little bit limited by the the what they were letting people sing in mid-century America. If she were around Legally. today, I think she would be on every recording of everything. Her flexibility and her dynamic range is a 92. Coloratura is an 89. The legato and her phrasing, the sound just pours out of her. It's a 93 for me. And and uh, her commitment to the drama and to bringing the characters to life through her vocalism is a respectable 84. Well, that's an amazing uh, uh, sort of set of stats here. We've got one more. And Ashley, to set the stage here for you, uh, you've got uh, I've got all my uh, my uh, my opera cards out on the table and I move uh, Birgit Nielsen into attack position and focus it on your uh, uh, on your card. <laughs> but unfortunately, I've activated your trap card, and your trap card is... We're moving to Mezzoland. We're going to talk about my friend Flicka. Eleanor. None, none <laughs> other. The, yes, Eleanor. Uh, no, we are going to talk about Frederica von Stade, who I love Yay. and who everybody should love more. Uh, this is... This is the title of my segment, Carabino Bel Canto Americano Tesoro. Those are the words that I am thinking of when it comes to her. So we often will praise mezzos that are full and heavier. And officially, those are the ones I love. The woman singing Ulrika right now at CSO. I want to be her when I grow up someday or when I die. Um, while I love heavy mezzo sounds, Flicka is that light mezzo. And she's sweet and she's clear and she's agile. She is energetic and she is playful. And, you know, the voice strengthens later on in her career, but it still has this uniqueness and playful sound that is just a hundred percent her she is also this gap bridger between some like major eras you know she first fell in love with opera after she saw elizabeth schwarzkopf sing live she eventually ended up coaching Mahler with bernstein but then she ended up sharing the stage with people like richard stillwell jerry hadley tommy hansen kathy battle susan graham so she really does have this span when you think about sort of timelines and how we move forward in 20th century opera she right. has sung on over a thousand recordings that range from bel canto to jazz i know we've been looking at, we've been talking about people as if they're on baseball cards i'm gonna switch to the lesser known football cards oh. uh and in nfl terms I like to think of her along the lights of contemporary players like J.J. Watt, Travis Kelsey, Russell Wilson. They have these incredibly long tenures. They are essential players who also just happen to be the nicest folks on the field. Because she is also known, in addition for her fun personality and her warmth and her beautiful instrument, she's also just known as an incredible human. And that's one of the reasons that I love her. She came to us from upper crust stock in the wealthy Northeast America. Uh, I think she was born in like Somerville, New Jersey. Uh, she was born in 1945. Sadly, her dad died literal weeks before she was born in World War II. Um, her musical development, however, didn't exactly follow sort of this upper crust. You would imagine that someone born into such a life of privilege would automatically be in all of the finest conservatories. It's not exactly how it turned out for her. Uh, her career laid these really strong foundations in Mozart and Rossini and French and modern American repertoire. Uh, she actually first started singing opera when she got a Compromario contract from, speaking of, the aforementioned Rudolf Bing <laughs> after uh, she competed in the 69 Met recruiting competition. She says one of her Compromario jobs in the 
beginning was zipping up to Baldy before some of her B flats. Uh, Which on a good night were actually B flats. Did I say that? <laughs> Oops. What? Shade. The tea is hot today. Uh, she did spend a few seasons as a compromario at the Met, and then she left in 72 to take her first major contract, which is Carabino in Marriage of Figaro at Versailles with George Schulte conducting. Um, this is a weird, fun side fact. In addition to sort of the history that she makes in classical music and opera, she also made history in American family case law. Uh, her first divorce set a precedent in that, establishing the principle that when marriages of performing artists dissolve, the courts can attribute an economic value to their celebrity status and treat it as a marital property to be shared with former spouses. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Her first her first divorce is in textbooks. Uh, but let's get back into this Carabino Belcanto Americano Tesorio of it all. Carabino. She was the Carabino to end all Carabinos. She sang <laughs> that role in three different decades. She sang wow. it 48 times at the Met. Let's go on to stats. 48 times at the Met. Houston, Santa Fe, Vienna, Chicago twice. Salzburg four times. She sang carabino everywhere she was the consummate carabino from the 70s to sort of the early 90s uh she did end up covering a lot of other mozart territory as well she got into the dupontes with dorabella Zarlina, and despina the last most recently as uh 20 i said my notes say 21 but that's not wrong 2012 at ravinia uh <laughs> and she made a home for herself in the trouser rolls of clemenza and idomeneo uh bel canto her rosinas i love this about her her rosinas were very much on her own terms both in music and dramatic interpretation. A lot of people before her played Rosina as a soubrette, and she added this depth mm. and substance to both the music and the drama. The, her Rosinas were sharper, they were more strong-willed in one moment, and then allowed to be tender in the next. So it wasn't just like a, a quirky, you know, second grader on the first day of school shaking her finger soubrette interpretation <laughs> right. of Rosina. These these women had much more personality and agency. And that that also, like, it that ties in so well with her, like, her strengths as a singer, because she has this beautiful... 100% sweetness to her voice but there's a lot of tanginess underneath it too that i love that she keeps it in there it uh it just feels very personal and it's uh, like instantly recognizable that kind of um it's almost like a twang when she at at the bottom of her register where like you can hear that twinkle in her eye in rosina all right let's talk about the stats for rosina we're looking at 22 times at the met Covent Garden, Vienna, Hamburg, San Francisco twice, La Scala twice, Chicago twice. She also had some incredible turns for Rosini and Cenerentola, Rosini Zotello, Sonambula, and La Donna del Lago. This is what she says about Belcanto. I love this quote. And she says, I love Belcanto. It's the core of what singing is about. I really believe so much in Belcanto, and particularly Rossini's music. It does everything that can be accomplished through the voice. Sometimes what you want to get across is, this is hard, but I am fantastic because I can do this. <laughs> That's what Rossini is. And that's also a lot of what Flicka is. Uh, so we've hit the Carabino and the Belcanto. Let's talk about the Americano. Flicka's career has been intertwined with her home country. When we talk about operas, we know her for things like Dangerous Liaisons, The Aspirin Papers, Coffer in Egypt, Three Decembers, but perhaps most of all, Dead Men Walking, which Mm -hmm. leads into her relationship artistically with Jake Heggie. Musical theater, this woman recorded Showboat, Anything Goes, and On the Town. She starred in a little night music in Candide, and she even has a jazz album, Frederica von Schada sings Brubeck. Uh, She has always said that she is glad that she chose an opera career over musical theater because it allowed her more space. She would only 
only perform a few times a week as opposed to theater where she'd be doing like eight shows right, a week. Yeah. But wow, this woman can sing Sondheim. There is a recording of her singing Send in the Clowns and it is tender and beautiful and poignant. And it's just, it. it I couldn't love her more. Uh, now we get to the Tesoro. Though she might be eclipsed sometimes by the reputations of some of her other contemporaries, the Upshaws, the Bartolis, she is legit one of the nicest people in opera. That prima donna stereotype, it never really fit her. She has this voice that seems to be an extension of her personality. It's warm, it's energetic, it's human, it is uniquely hers. Uh, Brian Keller wrote about this once in Opera News. Uh, he says, one of the odd things about Von Schott's success is that people don't seem to talk about her voice all that much. Uh, she may owe her army of admirers primarily to her stage appearances. Certainly she possesses a personal warmth that's rare in the theater. She does give a sense of having worked very hard always to be a good colleague. She is endlessly supportive of her associates. Uh, since the 2010s, she's sort of semi-retired. She's stepped back and she's been doing a lot of real big active work in charities in the Bay Area, which is where she settled with her second husband. Also, one of the proceedings from getting married to that guy also ended up setting family law precedent. That's a story for another day. Uh, but <laughs> she's just breaking been down in- barriers everywhere she goes. She really is. <laughs> but she's been incredibly active in raising money and being an activist for certain, ch- uh, specifically children's charities in the Bay Area. And every... W- account that I have read when it comes to interacting with Flicka uh, and my personal interactions with Flicka. She's just an unapologetically genuine human. And I know I have gone on many a rant on this show about opera singers. It's so nice when they're also good people as well. And she is absolutely one of the definitive measures of that. Uh, So in terms of sort of trading card stats, I... I love her a lot. These numbers are fully unbiased. These are just facts and science. Uh, Coloratura, let's give her an 11 out of 10. Uh, Sparkle, (laughs) let's give her 9 out of 10. Interpretation, 10 (laughs) out of 10. Again, I'm just the messenger. This is just science. And all around good human points, 1 billion out of 10. That seems reasonable, yes. Lovely human. Different reading skill on the football cards. That's (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a different reading skill on those. Um, I did not pepper my uh, my info to you guys with some recordings, but I have them all here at the end. Again, like I mentioned, she is she was known for a very long time as like the quintessential Carabino. Uh, and right here, we're going to play you a little bit of her doing that role in 1980 at the Upper Garnier, Garnier, excuse me, uh, with George Schulte conducting. One of the areas where she was really, really beloved was in French repertoire. And why not hear a little bit of her as Octavian in Rosencavalier next to Kathleen Battle and Renee Fleming at a 1992 concert with the Berlin Philharmonic?
And finally, let's talk a little bit about those coloratura fireworks that are so beautiful in her instrument. Here's a little bit of Tantiafetti from Donna del Lago with Martin Katz at the piano in 1981. Uh, George is not here, so regrettably, I'm the one in charge of sports. So please, please, someone help me. <laughs> I'll take this one. Uh, <laughs> if you remember from our Sports Ondo talk a couple of episodes ago, uh, where baseball fever hit at such a pitch that people in other towns wanted to know about games that were happening across the country. Uh, there's a 2022 version of that that just happened a couple of days ago. Uh, so the Stanley Cup Finals literally just finished. Congratulations to the Colorado Avalanche. Uh, but the fans in Tampa Bay wanted to see what was going on for the Avalanche game that was happening in Colorado. So there, the Lightning, the Tampa Bay Lightning, used tracking technology to simulate the Stanley Cup final for fans in their home arena. That so, sounds familiar. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So it's really cool. You can see it. It's on uh, ESPN's Instagram from, I believe, the 25th. Uh, and there's literally, like, there's a shot from inside the Tampa Bay Arena, and there are little digital skaters just shooting across the ice that are being projected as a direct result of the game that's happening in Colorado. It's uh, It's pretty fascinating. Just put it in an opera house and we'll repeat history, uh, but maybe in a good way this time. That'd be a change. It's the two-minute drill coming up now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. Opera singers around the country have spoken out about the overturning of Roe vs. Wade. America's favorite bisexual Carmen, Jamie Barton, tweeted, We knew this was coming, and it's still horrifically gut-wrenching. Joyce DiDonato posted a video of herself singing Cru de Furie from Zerse, adding, Handel understood rage. I encourage you to sing along, as loud as you can. And then organize your ass off vote. 
A study by Opera America has found that opera's lack of diversity is particularly striking backstage, with only a fifth of administrators identifying as people of color. The study, which was based on survey results from 97 opera companies, did find one sign of progress. 61% of positions in administrations were women. Hello, friends of the show, Afton Battle, Preeti Gandhi, Ashley Magnus, and Jennifer Rivera. The Royal Opera House has made the decision to cancel performances of Madama Butterfly and Cosi Fantute last week due to tube and national rail strikes. The company said, due to the sheer numbers of staff and artists unable to travel to and, and from the building, we have been forced to make changes to the schedule, which means technical rehearsals essential for the safe running of performances can now not take place. George, sorry about that. Hope you didn't miss your favorite opera, Madame Butterfly. <laughs> the New York Times has released a complete case study of the fallout of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the career of Anna Netrebko. The article details a $350,000 labor grievance she filed against the Met, protesters outside her Paris recital, her vacillating statements on support of Putin, and much, much more. Reimbursements for the two hours Ashley spent in therapy screaming about Netrebko were, sadly, not listed. Ricardo Muti had some harsh words for revisionist directors of canonical operas, saying, quote, The problem today is that these operas are in the hands many times of stage directors who, with some exceptions, are destroying the opera. The conductor accused most directors of not being able to read music and defended his decision to perform operas without alterations, including keeping racist language present in older librettos. Quote, We should not change so that the next generations must know the abomination that has been done for centuries. If you change the words, you don't solve the problem. As the 2022 Santa Fe Opera Festival season is set to launch, the company has announced that the 2023 festival will offer Tosca, The Flying Dutchman, Pelias et Melisande, Rizalka, and a new version of Monteverdi's Orfeo featuring orchestrations by Nico Muli. In trade news, Sue Fitzsimmons has been tapped as the new executive director of Edmonton Opera. An experienced choral singer and professor, Fitzsimmons has previously held leadership positions at Medicine Hat College and the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. On the disabled list, Jonas Kaufmann has withdrawn from the upcoming Prima of Cav Pag at the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden. Sorry, George. He has also <laughs> withdrawn from all further performances of Pagliacci in this double bill due to the lasting effects of a COVID infection. But the company hopes, let's be real, they're praying that Kaufman will be able to sing the role of Tudidu in later performances of the run. Soprano Jessica Pratt has withdrawn from performances of Tales of Hoffman in Spain's Teatro de las Palmas, also due to lingering symptoms of COVID-19. Said Pratt, quote, While I am making progress every day, I am not yet able to sing, so I am forced to be patient and give my body the time it needs to recover properly. Exit stage right, Nora London, the wife of legendary bass baritone George London, died last week at the age of 98. After the death of her husband, she devoted herself to supporting and nurturing young singers. Said artist manager Ken Benson on Facebook, Nora will be greatly missed by all who had the honor of knowing her. German tenor Peter Maus has died at age 74, following a brief illness. Maus got his start as a member of the Deutsche Oper Berlin, where he performed a wide variety of roles and was eventually named a Kammersänger. Maus was a longtime member of the Bayreuth Festival. And on this day, June 27, in 1846, the, um, the first general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, Henry Abbey, was born in Ohio. An apt celebration today at the birth of American composer 
organist and pianist Mildred Hill, who with her younger sister Patty wrote the famously trademarked song, Happy Birthday to You. She was born in 1859. <laughs> Uh, in 1896, Carl Goldmark's opera and Weston's perennial favorite piece, The Cricket <laughs> on the Hearth, premiered in Berlin. Uh, in 1932, we celebrate the birth of American soprano Anna Moffo. And finally, happy birthday to American soprano Nancy Gustafson, born on this day in 1956. And that's your two-minute drill. That was on a muffle closing out the mad scene from Lucio de Lammermore from a famous RAI broadcast of the opera that she did that was part of what rocketed her to stardom in the Italian opera repertoire. And also scored her the win in the TKO against Aditya Gubarova. Oh, one for the oh, for the yeah. longtime stands. I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't uh, we can't sing Happy Birthday to her because of the uh, copyright by uh, Patty Smith Hill. <laughs> but we won't talk about that. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at opera box score at gmail dot com in order to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. George will get that to you right as soon as he gets back from all of these canceled performances in England. Uh, I sure <laughs> hope he didn't have a lot of tickets because, man, he's not seeing anything at the moment. <laughs> not happening. Uh, I think the uh, most, uh, I, I think the first story we should talk about, of course, is probably um, the reaction of the opera community to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, obviously, it is uh, something that affects everyone in this country. Um, but uh, it's nice to see some uh, opera singers taking a stand and really speaking out against it. Um, Ashley, do you have any uh, any elaboration on that for us? Um, as the resident uterus holder on this hosting panel, uh, I want to clarify that specific sections of the operatic community are speaking out. Uh, you'll notice we we heard from uh, we heard from Joyce. We heard from who was the other person in that in that Jamie Barton. that we heard of Jamie? Yes, of course, of course. Um, we also have seen you know Instagram is kind of the place where people are taking to 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 talk about these things now so you saw some words come out from sasha cook you saw some things come out from our girl my friend of the show christine gerke no surprise there uh you even saw a statement come out from agma about you know this yeah. is where we band together here's who i haven't heard from mm. male singers I haven't heard from any male opera singers on this. If you have some listeners, please point me in their direction because I would love to see it. As much as the overturning of legislation like Roe is specifically challenging and affecting to 
disenfranchised female populations, women in, in all communities, women specifically in communities of color. It, it really does affect all of us. And I would really love to see some men say something, yeah. anything, say something, anything, male singers, any of you. I know you all have Instagrams. So uh, believe me, I see you on them all the time. So it'd be really awesome if you could step up for us for like a second. Um, But yeah, I mean, this is, I listeners to the show will will not be surprised to hear that I am incredibly frustrated by the events of the Supreme Court of the last week or so. Not just uh, this decision, but a few others that came down as well. There's been a bunch of real bangers lately, (laughs) and the terms not over yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's we're not even done. That's the thing. Like the the praying at the fifty yard line of a football game came down today. I'm like, what fresh hell awaits us tomorrow morning? What is the establishment clause? (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah but and and there's so many more things to get into that we absolutely don't have time to for for a show like ours but right it's important to check in on the women and to expand that further the childbearing folks the people who can have children that are mm-hmm. in your life check in on them they may not be okay they may still be pretty rageful i know i am uh but it's uh i'm i'm glad to see musicians that feel comfortable and safe enough using their platforms to speak out on this i encourage more to do it specifically male singers i encourage more of mm. you to say a little something on that note i i want to mention a little bit the uh this diversity study from opera america which is a uh, uh, it's kind of remarkable we haven't had a lot of these kinds of studies so far, and I feel like it's very important. I mean, it, it says, you know, I mean, if you've been listening to Opera Box Score uh, for a, any amount of time, you know that uh, lack of diversity in the administrations of all these opera companies is a huge, huge issue. I, I think it's uh, – I think the uh, at-large uh, – POC population uh, as it's close to 40% close to 40% and we're looking at around one-fifth uh, in uh, in opera companies and and keep, bear in mind too you know a lot of opera companies are in cities which have even higher proportions of, of people of color than uh, surrounding areas so it's very important to uh, um, you know think that this might be a, you know an underestimate I'm really glad that someone uh, that an organization like Opera America is looking into things like this. And I was pleasantly surprised to see the amount of women in leadership positions in uh, uh, in opera. But obviously, there's there needs to be more. Uh, and uh, I once again remind all of our listeners that, you know, as great as it is to see, you know, people of color uh, on stage, you have to remember that off stage is often old white men. It really is. Um, uh, go, go ahead, Ash. I believe you have something to say about that as well. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, again, I, I echo your, your positive sentiments. It's like, yes, I'm glad to see that at least someone is doing some thinking and studying and reporting right. out on this. The, the results of these are not incredibly surprising, understanding how glacially these sorts of things move. But I was having this conversation about sort of equity and inclusion and and the differences between those two terms and thinking about, you know, there's a real big difference between this is a community that is open to and welcomes everybody versus this is a community that was created specifically with you in mind and with bringing you Mm, in in mind. And I think when it comes to seeing the back of the house be more reflective of populations that are actually existing in these communities, we're going to have to start thinking in that way as well. Um, It's, 
it's it's going to take us a long time. It's going to take us longer than it should, frankly. Um, right. But I do appreciate that this study is out. I also appreciate that some of the people that we mentioned, the the female leadership, you know, some of those women were in fact women of color as well. And again, it's you know the door is cracking ever so slightly. I'm ready to go and like you know jam kick it down. But we're <laughs> it's it's moving, however slowly. Right. It, it it is. I do think that there is some progress going on, but you can't let up. If there's something this past week has taught us, like you, you can't, you know, let the reactionaries, you know, uh, grab back on to the power again. So any progress we see without without commitment, you know, uh, by the people who are who want progress can be taken away if we're not careful. Uh, that might be a little bit on the nose for <laughs> for this discussion, um, but certainly it's uh, it's uh, something to consider. Uh, on in brighter news, uh, let's talk a little bit about this Santa Fe season uh, yeah. coming up. Uh, friends Oliver, of the show, friends of the show, always get extra publicity yeah, <laughs> on the OBS. So, <laughs> we love. Uh, uh, so their season offers Tosca with uh, Angel Blue and Leah Hawkins splitting mm-hmm. the title role, and Joshua Guerrero splitting the role with the uh, rising star Freddie De Tomaso, mm-hmm. who's just twenty eight years old and already has a recording contract with Decca. And uh, Scarpy will be sung by Reginald Smith Jr. Mm. Uh, Flying Dutchman, one for you, Weston, will star Nicholas Brownlee, yeah. who has his own podcast, or at least he used to have one, Hook, Pray, and Pull, or Push, Push, Pray, and Hook, <laughs> Hook, I forget what it was called. Eat, Pray, Love, so, something think, like that. Yeah. I think it's Hook, Push, and Pray. I yeah. think that's right, too. Yeah, with Elsa Vandenheever, Vanderheever oh, yeah. as Elsa, as Santa, excuse me, and uh, Morris Robinson singing Dalan. There will be a Palliasa Melisande, an opera I've always wanted to see in person. I've only ever listened yeah. to it. Uh, Harry Bickett will conduct with Hugh Montag, Randall as um, Palliasa, and Samantha Henke as Melisande, the 2021 Cardiff singer of the world, Gihun Kim as Golo, mm. and uh, a cameo by Susan Graham as Genevieve. Mm. There will be Ruzalka with friend of the show Lydia Ankovskaya conducting and friend yeah. of the show Eileen Perez in the title oh. role. And then, of course, the show I'm very excited about, uh, Nico Muli's Monteverdi's Orfeo. Stage directed by Yuval Sharon and Rolando Villazone making his company debut as Monteverdi's oh. Orfeo. So that will be super interesting for many different yeah, absolutely. reasons. <laughs> I mean, I I will say I'm a big uh, period performance guy, but uh, I do have a soft spot for uh, attempts to sort of rethink uh, uh, early classics. I'm I'm a big fan of the um, uh, Karl Orff's Lorfeo, which I refer to affectionately as as the Lorfeo, um, <laughs> if you will. That's my joke for the day. I can make that joke because I'm the uh, I'm the host. You're just over there, just like pounding back the Strauss Evigniano <laughs> lead, like. Again, again, again. <laughs> I'm I'm really excited about that one. It's it's a great season as usual. Uh, I uh, I have never been in person to uh, the Santa Fe Festival, but I have high hopes that uh, I can make it next year. So, uh, if uh, Santa Fe, if you want to send us a couple of uh, free tickets. We'll do it. All right, let's close out this two-minute drill with a uh, a new segment uh, with our field reporter, Ashley, who was there <laughs> when <laughs> some of these uh, comments were made by Maestro Muti. What did you see on the ground, Ashley? Uh, listen, okay. Um, 
So I definitely at the beginning of dress rehearsal. Okay, this is all prefaced by one of my employers happens to be the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I happen to be a member of one of the music making bodies that is a part of the concerts for which these reporters that wrote this stuff about Muti were in town and in house right. for. Uh, right. I had actually written to uh, the gents of OBS earlier in the week and was like, wow, y'all, this concert's going to be good. The soloists are incredible and this is happening and this is happening. Uh, the final dress rehearsal the day before open was open to a number of journalists from places here in Chicago, the Associated Press, uh, which is where this, uh, which is where our news item came from. Muti began rehearsal with these comments. He walked out with a, a cordless mic, which he does not usually have, uh, and he addressed the sort of maybe a fifth full on the floor audience uh, to speak about these things and and the the stage directors who many of them aren't able to read music. I mean, fair point, to be honest. Some of the stage directors that I know of as of late don't actually read music, but it was it. It's tough. It's tough. It, here's the deal. Ricardo Muti is a master of Verdi. He is one of the final living masters of Verdi. There right. is no way to challenge that or question that. Uh, there is absolutely room to be uncomfortable with some of the things that he said quite publicly right before a four-hour rehearsal, which happened to be the final dress rehearsal for Mbalo and Mascara in concert uh, At form. least um, save the awkward comments till the end of rehearsal. <laughs> not <laughs> splendidissimo. Not splendidissimo I, at all. It, not at all. And I mean, if you've read some of the reviews of the concert, uh, you know, it's it's largely being very well received. Uh, but this was definitely a weird way to sort of set the tone before we <laughs> weird before vibe. we sang for, for yeah, weird vibe, weird vibe. And whether you agree with his comments or not, it's what it really showed was this portrait of someone who is in the twilight of their career and has very strong feelings about the direction in which he feels this art form is going. Right. Uh, and I, there were a few points that were very valid. Uh, the point about keeping the language in the text from the judge in Balo and his disparaging comments about Eureka, those didn't sit as comfortably with me, especially because the person singing the judge was singing. The judge was a person of color that, Mm. which he also made sure to point out very publicly. And he mm. pointed out the other singers of color that also happened to be in the cast and, and said that he had spoken with them about that, whether he did or not, it was, it was kind of an uncomfortable moment. Uh, it's, 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 it's very tough because it's, it's one of those, are you trying to separate the art from the artist thing? Are you, you know, he really believes in his soul that Verity was this very good human. And, whether or not you agree with that is a discussion for another day. But the the comments about the just you know the destruction of opera and if you use newer revisions or if you change a story you know if you amend a storyline dramatically so that Carmen stabs Jose or whatever his his umbrage with that is very different than we're seeing from some of the newer generation of leaders and music makers. And what you're saying is he would hate reverse Labo M. <laughs> he would so hate reverse Labo M. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the if, if you heard our news article, if you saw anything about what the AP wrote about, you know, this, this moment of Muti in the twilight of his career and felt a little discomfort, 
quintuple that and that is how it felt in the house <laughs> as he began rehearsal with these remarks and what i feel is, it's like especially interesting to go to the mat to defend the boston version of umbalo and mascara <laughs> that no one even like there is actually another version of this same source material that was the version that verdi really wanted to do but wasn't allowed to do because of the censors which is set in sweden where this actually happened like to the fact that like he's painting over this as though his hands were tied but actually he made a conscious choice to use this version of the libretto right <laughs> and to cut and to decry any criticism of that as political correctness is just one of those like if all you have is a hammer then everything looks like a nail situations it's like complaining about reverse lob om and then switching uh, switching the first two scenes you know what i mean Get out plus, of here. Plus, it's a concert <laughs> version, and nobody's trying to stage your shit in the first place. So, so true. Yeah, I think we've got our first bad call. But let's see if they we have any more lined up in our final segment of the night. Good call, bad call. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. That's right. It's good call, bad call. How we end every show, even when George isn't here. Let's start with Oliver. Very very uh, late. Good call, but uh, as I was preparing for uh, today's uh, singing trading cards segment and for another show that I do on a different platform, I was thinking about American singers um, and I was thinking about a recording that I used to listen to of Les Nuits d'Ete, uh, Jan de Gatani, uh, who died um, in 1989, um, four months before she died. Uh, she recorded Les Nuits d'Ete uh, with the uh, Eastman Chamber Ensemble. Um, she had leukemia, and it just brings a special... I mean, I think she knew that she was um, uh, in her... She was sick, and uh, there's just something very uh, sad about this recording, but beautiful, and she's always been a great artist. But if you listen to this recording with that context, you like it really hits a different way. So I listen to Les Nuits d'Ete every summer, just like, oh, how do you how do you start the summer? You know, <laughs> um, what is your <laughs> and, and and that's mine. So if you haven't heard it, Jan Degatani with the uh, Eastman Chamber Ensemble Orchestra. Check it out. Matt Cummings. Speaking of summer and music making, uh, if you're in Chicago and listening to this right when it comes out, you might still have a chance to join me uh, at Grant Park this week uh, where they're doing the Britain Spring Symphony on Wednesday the 29th and Friday the 1st. Uh, it's never a bad time for old Benny B. Like, it's a good call for me. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. I know I like to bring lots of joy and positivity, but I have a bad call this week. Um, opera singers on social media, specifically on Instagram, thank you for your service. Thank you for giving us a window into your life and your process and your artistry and what you do. I do need you to do me a favor. I need you to stop singing directly to camera <laughs> when you record things to post on your Instagram. It is creepy. It is my nightmare. Just look a little bit to the right. Don't look directly into my soul while you're warming up or singing <laughs> the the opening bars of the aria that you're working on for your show. Just, just don't look at the camera. Look, It's too much. It's too much. It's too close. It's too intimate. And it makes me very uncomfortable. Keep doing what you're doing, but look a little bit to the right when you do it. It reminds me of the, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, what's the, the Theranos lady? Um, Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes uh, in those ads where she's like, it's like really close to her face with the white background and she's just talking in her Elizabeth Holmes. It's Holmes a combination voice. of therapy and diagnosis. 
it's, it's, it really it really hits that uncanny valley in your brain. I don't have a, a good call or bad call, but I do have one from George who says he watched West Side Story on the plane to London even on a 10-inch screen with bad sound. It was still incredibly moving. Oh, isn't that sweet? That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can just hit that plus sign. Send a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is me, Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm Weston Williams again, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you file a labor grievance against the Metropolitan Opera. We're off next week because America. But we'll be back before you know it with more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more male opera singers railing against the Supreme Court, I hope. Join us. Join us.